This is an ABC podcast. Imagine going from a life of luxury to a squalid prison cell. Well, that's the fate of Hong Kong businessman and pro-democracy campaigner Jimmy Lai. Today, his fight against Chinese oppression and his bid for freedom. I'm Tom Switzer, and this is Between the Lines. Also today, the rehabilitation of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. You get to choose your friends, but you can't choose your neighbours. And Syria is their neighbour. Nobody has a plan for unseating Assad. He's here to stay, and they realise they have to deal with him. That's Professor Joshua Landis, coming up on RN. But first, once overwhelmingly popular, the Indigenous Voice to Parliament well, it's seen its approval rating dropping dramatically. It's about 53% and the trends are going down. Now, remember, for The Voice to be successful, October's referendum needs to win a majority of support in a majority of states. So what accounts for The Voice's decline? After all, we're all too often told that the nation's ideological landscape is becoming more progressive and that the coalition under Peter Dutton occupies the far-right fringe of American politics. Peter Credlin is a presenter at Sky News Australia and a columnist at the Australian and Sunday News Corp papers. She was a chief of staff to the former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. Peter, welcome to RN. Great to be with you, Tom. Now, how do you account for the declining political support for The Voice? Well, look, I think the high watermark for The Voice is based on a lot of goodwill. And despite the push of some, Australians aren't a racist nation. I mean, we've done a lot to, I think, embrace Aboriginal activists and Aboriginal citizens over the last 30-plus years, look at the support for reconciliation, uh, look at things like the weekend, the AFL's Indigenous Round. I mean, huge crowds, lots of support. And the NRL. And the NRL. But I think the voice is losing altitude because the proponents have done very little to bolster that goodwill. You know, they, they thought that would be enough. They thought that uh, it would just carry of its own accord with great acclamation. But past referendums will tell you uh, people want a lot more detail. I mean, they, they understand, and that's coming through in groups right now, they understand that changing the constitution is a big deal. And this is not like running a small target strategy in a political campaign where you've got a well-known party brand or, or a leader that's been around for some time. This is almost bigger than politics. And I think the recent discussion, particularly, say, in Queensland about state-based treaties, uh, the minister up there has said we've got 150-plus of them to negotiate. They'll cost us around $100 million each. Uh, when people have got their backs to the wall financially, I mean, they understand that means a road doesn't get built or a, or a hospital doesn't open. Um, you add in the fact that the main proponent of the voice is the PM, and, and sure, he is more popular uh, than his opponent, but that popularity is coming off fast. Cost of living, as I said, is biting people. And every time he opens his mouth, he's, he's prophetising on the voice and they're saying, well, okay, fair enough, you, you care deeply about it, but I'm pretty worried about what's happening in my community or to my family or where things are headed financially. And I know it's going to upset some of your listeners to hear this, but I'm, I'm going to call it as a campaigner. I also think Linda Burney, is a problem. I think she's a weak advocate. I think her, her, her messages only talk to those that are rusted on. She's not convincing undecideds. 
And the undecideds are what matters, that and the point you made before about this state-by-state state, um, split in the vote. And finally, uh, this hasn't been understood enough. Where are the advocates in all of this that are a surprise? I mean, where's the big personality on the Labor right? Where's the big personality on the centre right? Where, God forbid, is the Conservative? Because the Yes campaign don't have Howard, they don't have Abbott, both of them prime ministers that went to an election um, promising constitutional recognition. Now, both say they can't support this voice because this isn't recognition. They say this is a power grab, uh, fundamentally divides our nation by race. And if you look at the primary vote, forget the two PP, but look at the primary vote of recent elections, there is still an overwhelming number of Australians out there who identify in the centre-right but there's no significant centre-right voices uh, in this Yes campaign. Nonetheless, the Yes campaign has huge funds and resources to spend before October's referendum. It's big business, but also the richest philanthropists. We've got the Ramsey Foundation putting in $5 million uh, all up. They've got about $20 million to support the Yes campaign. The leading sporting codes, the AFL, the NRL, tennis, cricket... They've joined the Yes campaign. The no side, by contrast, apart from the point you just made about the lack of leadership there, has very limited funds from the big end of town, so surely that will hurt the no campaign. Spot on. I don't disagree with you. I mean, uh, the Yes campaign's in trouble, but it's not over yet, a long way from being over. And that big disparity between the funding, um, it, it look, it matters. I mean, campaigns run on money. It's as important as oxygen. But just because you're spending big money doesn't mean you're going to get a result. Look at Clive Palmer, $100 million. He got one candidate in the upper house out of Victoria. So it's what you do with the money that matters. And I think right now I'd have to say the Yes 23 campaign, that's the official campaign you're talking about there with money from philanthropists and others, I think they're wide of the mark. Um, I've seen their ads. I think their ads are not talking to ordinary people. Um, they're talking to sort of the, the Greens and the, and the professional union class. They're not selling the voice. They're trying to, at least this stage, sell a vibe. I think we're well past uh, the vibe. Now, that'll change. They've got some really experienced campaigners in their team. They've got a, a lot of current and former ex-libs, so they will target that vote on the centre-right. But I think one of the issues to date is there's been a lot of morality uh, in the yes campaign tone, the hectoring, lecturing, I think throwing all the the sports uh, and other elites hunters out there don't want that stuff mixed in. I think they want a constitutional debate. I think that's incredibly important that they have that with um, detail provided. But I think some of the hectoring, lecturing, the elites, sport in particular, I think that's going to backfire. And I also think that there's. There's a growing concern in the migrant community that they they came to Australia because we have one class of citizenship and this is about creating two. And I think they, and look, I also say too statistically, you were either born overseas or you had a parent overseas for half the population. So half, 50% of us were born overseas with a parent born overseas. So, so the migrant vote in this will be critical. They feel alienated by this debate. They've got nothing to do with what happened two centuries ago. Um, most probably have never met an Aboriginal people. They would never regard themselves as racist. Many of them have, uh, you know, um, a less than Anglo um, background themselves. 
And so this this constant conversation about righting wrongs doesn't speak to them. Um, and I think that the, the, the Yes campaign focus on the Obama-type, you know, grassroots debate, which was very successful in the same-sex marriage vote, less so now because if you're you're talking over the back fence with someone about this issue, regardless of what your neighbour might think, perhaps maybe if they're a yes vote, but if they're no or if they're undecided, given it's about race, I think people are less likely to have an open and frank discussion of where they stand on things. I think they want it to move on. They don't, they're not going to uh, lengthen out the chat. Whereas same-sex marriage, we all have gay friends. We know uh, gay people at a kid's school. We've got a much stronger touch point on this issue. And that was about equality. This is about division. Okay. Now, you, you mentioned division and you highlight the perils and weaknesses of the Yes campaign. But what about the perils and weaknesses of the No campaign? All the available public opinion polling shows that large pluralities of Australians oppose Donald Trump's polarising style of politics. This is Noel Pearson writing in the Australian newspaper, Peter, just recently. He says, quote, The change that is needed to secure recognition of Australia's First Peoples is happening beyond that group of boomers who want this to be about the culture war. Pearson goes on to say, the problem is that too many party activists and parliamentary candidates and members of the Liberal and National Parties, this is what Noel Pearson says, they want Mm. to recreate America in Australia. Now, if Pearson's right, why import? Why should the No campaign import this extreme polarisation of American politics to our country? Well, that's a ridiculous comment from Noel Pearson. I mean, the only one trying to bring in race-based politics into Australia is the Yes campaign. The No campaign's not running on race-based politics. The the Yes campaign is, not the No campaign. And plenty of conservatives like me have no truck with Trump. We don't want American-style politics uh, in Australia. We we, we don't want to divide ourselves into voting tribes of of blacks and Hispanics and um, pull America apart based on religion, as, as they so often do on, on big campaign issues. I mean, that's the last thing people in Australia want to do, I think, on the left and the right. So I think Pearson perhaps wants a culture war because he there is concern about the vote not being out in enough uh, volume come October when we think this uh, referendum will be held. Maybe he wants a culture war because he thinks that that might uh, incentivise the vote for the Yes campaign, might get out the left voters uh, might activate their people. But look, oh, the only US figure I'd be quoting in all of this is Martin Luther King. I mean, content of character, not colour of skin. Not yeah, Donald no, Trump. but the advocates of The Voice say Indigenous communities across the country, they're just yearning for modest, measured change in the Constitution to rectify and historical justice. Here's constitutional lawyer Shireen Morris on this program recently. And they asked for a constitutionally guaranteed voice in laws and policies made about them. Not a veto, just a better say, an advisory say in decisions made about their communities. As Shireen Morris on a modest but profound request to make better practical outcomes in Indigenous communities. Peter Credlin, this is what this is all about. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with the voices in the parliament that are truly representative? I mean, you already have those. I mean, you've got Marion Scrimshaw in Alice Springs. You've got Jacinta Price, both speaking out in recent months about the, the huge dysfunction. I was there in February. I've seen it firsthand. I went out on night patrols. I mean, they both are on the same page when it comes to Alice Springs and they're not being listened to. So, 
my, my concern with the voice, Tom, is it's it's not representative democracy. I mean, there's no responsibility taken by this voice for anything that they might advocate inside the government system. I mean, they'll be all care and no responsibility. They're not administering money. Uh, they're not. They're, they're providing advice. They're not. They're not measured on their outcomes. I mean, we're not seriously suggesting that ten years down the track, if the voice gets up and uh, the gap hasn't been closed, that we'll say, well, we need to rethink this experiment. You know, we spent thirty billion dollars a year. We're only going backwards. We've done everything the voice says we should do. We've taken their advice. Uh, their advice is not worth the paper it's printed on. And we're not going to unwind this thing because it'll be in the constitution. And what? perhaps is my biggest concern with The Voice, is we have too many people for too long in this country in the area of Indigenous politics who don't take responsibility, that aren't measured by their outcomes. Politicians as well as the myriad of people that are in the Aboriginal economy and we need people to actually be measured on outcomes, hold their feet to the fire. We need more of that, not less, not, not a way for people to hide from cover. My guest is Peter Credlin from Sky News and The Australian. Now, Peter, the conventional wisdom, as I'm sure you're well aware, it says that Australia has moved in a progressive direction, and this is particularly evident uh, since the federal election about a year ago. Now, to the extent these trends continue, this means that the Conservative Liberal Party is in real trouble. Let me put to you what Chris Wallace, a veteran Canberra journalist, this is what she told me last week. Most people are more concerned about how am I going to pay my power bill? How am I going to meet my mortgage payment? Can I find a house to rent? Uh, meanwhile, the, the coalition seems to bang on with these really fringe US Republican style issues and get a lot of applause from it for it, you know, from the conservative media. But, you know, most Australians don't care. Chris Wallace there on the program last week on why the coalition spends more time on divisive culture war. She was referring to transgender issues that are being played out, especially in the Victorian Liberal Party. Peter Credlin. Well, hang on there. I mean, I think Chris Wallace is uh, referring to transgender issues which are pushed hard by the left. Um, Women's rights issues are being responded to by the right, but only because women are being squeezed out of women's places, spaces, and and women's sex-based rights are now somehow up for grabs. I mean, the Chris Wallace I used to know uh, would have been an advocate, had been an advocate, for women's rights. I mean, this was the, the yeah, domain. Has, hasn't left. this Victorian Liberal MP been expelled from a party, Maura Deeming? Yeah, but she hasn't been expelled. No, no, no. She's been expelled from the parliamentary team. She hasn't been expelled from the party. And in fact, uh, on the weekend, there was a walkout from a speech by the leader in revolt at her expulsion. She's still the party member. And I'd have to say probably two-thirds of the, the base, and I've been around the Liberal Party in Victoria for nine, 30 years, uh, support her argument that that... Standing up for women's rights, Tom, is not anti-trans. There should be a cohabitation of both of these issues. We should be able to thread the needle in this debate. But speaking out for women is somehow labelled by the left, by Chris Wallace's mob, as anti-trans. I mean, the special rapporteur on violence against women and girls, this is the UN special rapporteur, issued a statement on Monday that called out claims that women speaking out for women's sex-based rights are, quote, Nazi and extremist. She talks about women being thrown out of political parties or threatened to be thrown out of political parties. Now that's, I believe, a direct reference to Moradini. This is from the UN. So so the debate about women's rights can't be conflated about trans rights. Now I agree with Wallace where she says 
Punters care more about the power bill, you know, uh, putting food on the table, keeping their heads above water. I think the uptick in unemployment a couple of weeks ago really will have spooked ordinary Australians. But you can walk and chew, chew gum. I mean, the Libs can and should prosecute those issues, not on this false dichotomy of, you know, too far to the left and, oh, well, we're too far to the right. Fight them on Menzies' values. I mean, yeah, but the cold, hard reality is that the changes in time. urban demography, I mean, that's been driving these old erstwhile liberal voters to the teals and greens. Remember, Raringa, yeah, Mackellar, North Sydney, Wentworth in Sydney, just to clarify, mm. Brisbane, mm. Ryan in Brisbane, Curtin in Perth, Kuyong, Goldstein in, in Melbourne. You'd recently lost Aston. Uh, that's not a good trend, is it, Peter? No, it's not a good trend, but it's ever been thus in that seats change and demography changes and boundaries change. I mean... Abbott and Howard were considered by the left to be these, um, you know, far-right types. Of course, they're not. They were squarely on the centre-right. They held all of those seats. I mean, part of the reason at the last election, and you need to look at the last election through the prism of both a pretty ordinary platform that didn't stand for much that would excite Liberals, but, but also a deeply unpopular Prime Minister. I give credit to the Teals. They had terrific candidates local local candidates, this is where the Libs went wrong and so wrong in Aston, um, they had good local candidates, they had uh, buckets of money from their funding arm via Simon Holmes Accord, um, they had a very narrow platform, um, part of the reason why, again, the PM was successful, he, he narrowed the ask, he narrowed the arguments, unlike, say, Bill Shorten, well, the Teals did that successfully as well. And I might add that of all those seats you mentioned, Curtin is the only one where uh, an incumbent Liberal woman was beaten. Everywhere else they were beaten, um, the men, the incumbents were Yeah, men. well, I mean, you say the Teals had a uh, you know narrow platform, but what about female professional voters? Now, according to the Lochnane Hume post-election Liberal Review, the Liberal Party holds only three of the top 30 electorates for professional women. Now, that was compared with 15 previously. Again, isn't that a problem for the Liberal Party? Absolutely. Uh, the problem is Liberal Party puts up candidates in some of these seats. Uh, you know, they're a factional hack in a skirt, Tom. Uh, they, think, <laughs> they, do, they think they're putting up a, a female, just a female, um, without that female being locally connected. I mean, as good as the candidate was in Aston, she had nothing to do, no connection whatsoever. Just a, just a female with the Liberal Party brand isn't going to win the seats and it's not going to win the hearts and minds of professional women either. Um, you have to have a well-connected, substantial candidate. And again, that's what the Teal did right in those seats. But you also have to have a lot more than just a policy that's got a pink page, a pink cover that says, oh, this is our women's policy. I mean, women don't want to be siloed into one policy document. We care as much about, well, I do, foreign affairs, the economy, and national security, all the other things that are considered in the domain of men that aren't inside that pink book. And I, that's where they get it wrong. They've got to embed female issue, women's issues right across the board and not get into this trap thinking that they're just about that narrow time of life when women are raising children or, or they're doing, you know, um, more of the heavy lifting around the home. It's it's a much more sophisticated electorate than that, particularly in relation to, to, to professional women. But don't just focus on the teal seats, Liberal Party. You've got to get out there and win new ground. I think the last time we really did that was uh, Western Sydney under Howard. That's in the 90s, Tom. You know, they have not got outside the leafy parts of Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and chased down 
these new seats where people, you know, these women aren't professional women. They may not be in full-time work. They're juggling all the same concerns as people across the country, male and female, but we're not talking to them. We're sort of talking at them, but we're not having a conversation with them. Go back to your point about Moira Deeming. As she's out there in Western Melbourne, you know, when she got up to the, to the steps of the Victorian Parliament and got expelled as a result, she was reading out a speech that she had written with her Muslim female neighbour. I mean, these are the sort of seats, these are the sort of areas of urban um, capital cities that, that, that the Libs need to make ground in, and they're not. Peter, great to have you on RN. Delighted to be with you, Tom. Coming up, is Syria's President Assad once an international outcast, is he about to be welcomed in from the cold? Well, is the Middle East about to be reshaped? After all the instability, the violence of recent years, you think about the invasions, the uprisings, the toppling of regimes, the sectarian tensions. After all that, this is a quieter time but maybe no less profound. It's about the two big strategic players, the sharpest antagonists, having something of a rapprochement. First came the news back in March, those two regional powers, Shia Iran and Sunni Saudi Arabia, they had agreed to restore diplomatic ties after years of mutual hostility. Then this past week, Syria kicked out of the Arab League 12 years ago with the outbreak of its civil war and whose government and military has relied heavily on Tehran support. Well, Syria has been invited back to the Arab League. So if Bashar al-Assad is the murderous dictator portrayed in the West, why are Arab neighbours keen to re-embrace him? And will the rest of the world follow suit? Joshua Landis is director of the Centre for Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Oklahoma. He writes and manages SyriaComment.com. It's a daily newsletter on Syrian politics. Joshua, welcome back to Between the Lines. Well, it's a pleasure being with you, Tom. Well, what do you make of Assad's welcome back at the Arab League? Is it simply a recognition that his regime has essentially won serious civil war? Well, it has. It has won serious civil war. And, um, you know, to do with your question about why is the are the Arab states embracing him, uh, that has largely to do with the fact that you get to choose your friends, but you can't choose your neighbors. And Syria is their neighbor. Nobody has a plan for unseating Assad. He's here to stay, and they realize they have to deal with him. You know, the, the Jordanian foreign minister was really the clearest on providing a rationale, and he said, you know, trying to boycott Syria is not working. It has caused this big drug problem because Assad is has allowed for this captagon trade, illegal drug trade to go on in his country, and he's profiting from it. His family's profiting from it. And as long as there's no legal trade, there's going to be illegal drug trade. And also refugees are not going back. The Syrian economy has continued to crash, even though the civil war is largely over. Um, the currency has continued to collapse. It's under very, very strict sanctions. And this means nobody is going to go home. And both the Jordanians, the Lebanese, and the Turks want 
the refugees, the millions of refugees in their countries to go home, but they can't as long as there's no electricity, no jobs, and a, a an economy that's really just in a in a swoon. So these are the problems they're dealing with, and they understand that the only way um, this is going to get reversed is if they engage and if Syria rebuilds and it economy gets jump started and that's this is the dilemma though that they face is they've they've got this dictator that they don't like who has been brutal with his people but um yeah. but nobody really wants to replace him yeah but let's just clarify here i mean this is a regime that has killed hundreds of thousands of people it's bombed indiscriminately it's imprisoned displaced tortured huge numbers of people and now Syria is being invited back into the fold. See, many people, including many Australians who supported the Sunni rebellion against the Assad regime, they'll ask, how can this rapprochement happen? Well, that's, you know, many people are scratching their heads. But, you know, if we go back to the foreign policies of the United States and of Europe, Obama in 2011, after this broke out, the uprising in Syria, said that Assad had to go. But once America began to pour you know, money into the opposition, help to organize them, and really get the Saudis and the Qataris and the Turks to take the lead in arming and training the opposition. They quickly realized that they didn't have an alternative to Assad. And already in 2012, you see the Secretary of Defense of the United States saying, uh-oh, if the Syrian army collapses, what's going to happen to all the chemical weapons? Maybe Hezbollah will take them. Maybe some radical Islamic group will take So very quickly, you see the American administration realize they don't have an alternative to the Syrian army. By 2013, the deputy director of the CIA, Mike Morrell, goes on CBS, biggest one of the biggest channels, 60 Minutes, the, the most important news channel. And he says, we don't want the Syrian army to be destroyed because Syria may fall apart and radical Islamists may take Damascus. And so once you come to that decision that you don't want the Syrian army destroyed, and of course he's looking back at Iraq and what happened in Iraq only a few years earlier, uh, you know, a decade earlier when the army was destroyed and all hell broke loose and Al-Qaeda became the dominant power, the West got spooked. And although they, they demonize Assad, they didn't want his military to be destroyed or the state to be destroyed. And they they abandoned the Syrian opposition. And that's, so in a sense, the West has only itself to blame. Yeah, well, I remember in uh, August, September of 2015, when the Sunni rebellion, which included several Sunni jihadist groups, they were attacking the outskirts of Damascus and other key Assad territory. And it, the Russians decided to intervene with airstrikes. Do you think in hindsight, the Russian intervention that essentially propped up the Assad regime saved Syria from becoming an Islamic state stronghold? Uh, it did. It did. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Wow. And, uh, you know, the, the Brennan, the head of the CIA at the time, um, was pulling his hair and he said, we do not want Assad to collapse because ISIS was gonna take over. Now, 
John but then Kerry, at the time, sorry, Joshua, President Obama was condemning the Russians for intervening. You know, he was. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, that's in, in a sense, the, there were two different, I'm sure there were two different discourses going on in the White House. One was the, you know, the big media discourse, which is Russia shouldn't intervene, uh, bad Assad. But at the other hand, had ISIS which was knocking on the doors of Damascus, taken Damascus and actually owned an, an Arab capital, uh, it would have been a disaster for the West. I, I think, and I think that this will be shown as we get you know more research done on this, that probably John Kerry, Secretary of State and others, Obama, were relieved that the Russians stepped in. And, and John Kerry in a famous recording, a secret recording, he was talking to the Syrian opposition in 2016, and someone was recording on his Apple phone and put it up on YouTube later, was caught saying, you know, we were watching ISIS descend on Damascus. And we thought that Assad, he says, we thought we could manage it. That's the words he uses. And we <laughs> thought Assad would turn to us to negotiate. But what did he do? He went to the Russians. Now, the point is, is that Washington was very concerned and was watching ISIS close in. They thought that Assad and the military would turn, you know, and say, save us. And therefore, they would get rid of Assad. They would save the army. They would turn against ISIS. It didn't happen that way. Uh, and what we did see very quickly afterwards is a division of labor between America and Russia in which the United States decided to arm the Kurds in northern Syria and destroy ISIS and let and worked closely with the Russians and, and had a deconfliction process with the Russians in which the Russians would be responsible for all of Syria south of the Euphrates River, and they could go after any militia they wanted, and they saved Assad, and America destroyed ISIS uh, north of the Euphrates, and it still holds all of Syria north of the Euphrates, which is about 30% of Syrian territory. And that that division of labor, that division of Syria exists today in these new borders that um, it, where Syria has been divided. Okay, so, but back to Syria rejoining the Arab League. I mean, this is surely still, notwithstanding everything you said about the, the benefits of not bringing down Assad and creating an Islamic State stronghold. Nevertheless, this has been a major setback for the Americans. Is it fair to say that? And also, moreover, this is a geostrategic victory for Iran and Russia, Syria's two major allies. Fair point? Yes, uh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the United States, with the Arab Spring 2010, gambled on the overturning of these dictatorial regimes and believed that democracy was aborting in the Middle East. They were wrong. It, it, it wasn't the beginning of a democratic age. In fact, uh, we see dictatorships strengthened from one end of the Middle East to the other. And even countries like Turkey, which uh, seem to be moving in the direction of democracy, have uh, become more illiberal. And we see Erdogan looks like he's going to win the elections in the, in the second round in May 28th. Uh, so right across the Middle East, whether it's in Egypt with Sisi, whether it's the consolidated kingdom of Saudi Arabia under the under the full control of MBS. Um, yeah, there's in Tunisia, where we have um, a dictatorship more centralized than before. Right across the Middle East, we see that these authoritarian regimes have doubled down 
and are are re you know have reestablished themselves. So in that sense, the United States bet incorrectly, and is it's really has almost very little presence in Iraq. It has no presence in Afghanistan, in Libya. It's it's really persona non grata, and in Syria, it's got no presence. All the countries that it intervened in, uh, and including Yemen, if you will, indirectly. Uh, U.S. has almost zero presence. So does this mean that Washington, and we're talking about Syria rejoining the Arab League, which is clearly a a setback for the Biden administration and the Americans generally, but does this all mean, Joshua, that Washington has left the field in the Middle East? After all, it was China that brokered this Iran-Saudi rapprochement. It was. It was a big coup for China. The Arabs are now focused on China. If you take the, the... Recent polls in Arab countries show that something like 90% of Arabs see China as their future and about 30% as see America as their future. So yes, China has come up with a big, with a vengeance all over the Middle East. And that's because it's trade. I mean, if you look at China trade with Saudi Arabia, $90 billion last year, United States trade with Saudi Arabia was about four or $5 billion. Wow. You know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it was exactly the opposite. China had almost no presence. America was everywhere. Wow. And, and that, you know, that is in one Middle Eastern country after the next. China mm. is dominant. So but what about, what about the, the, the Saudi-Iranian rapprochement that China has helped broker here? Because the Saudi crown prince years ago... Uh, only a few years ago, he described the Iranian supreme leader as Hitler. So how do you account for the Saudi-Iran rapprochement that China's helped broker? Well, I would say, look at 2019 and The Iranians, after Trump undid the JCOP, the Iran nuclear deal that Obama had spent much of his administration trying to put together, that constrained and stopped Iranian nuclear development. President Trump scuttled it and said, we're going to get a better deal. And he put maximum pressure on Iran, big sanctions. Iran struck back. In 2019, it launched uh, missiles and drones at Abqaiq, big refinery in Saudi Arabia. What happened? Saudi Arabia looked to the United States and said, do something. President Trump said, I'll sell you some more Patriot missiles. And he did nothing against Iran. And Saudi Arabia had a sort of moment of truth. And they realized, you know, America is not going to save us. It's not going to protect us against Iran. We've got to do something different. And I think with China sort of pulling these two powers together, said you're much better off trying to make peace. And I think the second thing- Except except most people, Joshua, would say you don't negotiate with a Hitler. (laughs) They would. They would. And there are many people who do say this is a form of appeasement and it's going to end badly. On the other hand, if you're Saudi Arabia, you have Iran on one side, you have Israel on the other side. Israel has said, we're not going to allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon. And America said, we're not going to allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Now, Israel is pushing America to bomb Iran's nuclear facilities. And it said, if if America won't do it, we're going to do it. Now, Iran has said, if Israel bombs us, we're going to close the Persian Gulf and 
possibly hit Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is the weak link in this, and they did it in 2019. And Saudi Arabia doesn't want to be the punching bag if a war breaks out between Israel and Iran. So for that reason, I think Saudi Arabia is playing, doing the smart thing, which is reaching out to Iran, uh, rekindling relations, trying to build trust so that if there is real hostilities between Israel and Iran or between Israel and America and Iran, Saudi Arabia will not be the punching bag and caught in between. It'll have some protection. So it's been reaching out to both powers, Abraham Accords with Saudi Arabia and this new deal with Iran in attempt to, to, I think, protect itself. This is about national security for Saudi Arabia. Finally, back to Syria's rejoining the Arab League. Do you think that other nations outside of the region who have not supported President Assad, so obviously the Americans, the British, the Europeans and others, do you think they'll be more willing to engage with Damascus? I mean, as strange as it may sound, is there any interest now for Washington to re-normalise relations with Assad and Damascus? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and I think there's very little appetite for that. Um, now, the Arab countries are counting on the West doing exactly that, being, in a sense, dragged into re-engagement, kicking and screaming. But Congress has just uh, passed a, a, a bill with support from both Democrats and Republicans saying that anybody who trades with Syria, anybody who normalizes, is going to get punished through these sanctions and reaffirming this. Uh, this puts the Biden administration in a very awkward position, because on the one hand, um, Barbara Leaf, Undersecretary of State, had said, well, to the Arab countries, if you're going to re-engage with Syria, at least get something for it. Now, many people read into that, that the Biden administration is not really trying to stop this process. And it has counseled the Arabs to you know, try to get negotiate some benefits from this. Um, there's America's skeptical that they're going to get anything, but it looks like there's going to be a lot of popular pressure and the lobbying groups putting pressure on Congress not to allow this kind of normalization to creep into European and American um, policy, to me, not for it not to become policy. And, and that's going to put the Arab world and Saudi Arabia at loggerheads with President Biden. Uh, because if America tries to stop them from rebuilding Syria, it's going to cause a lot of anger, I think, uh, in Arab ca capitals, because they've chosen this policy now to re-engage and to rebuild Syria, try to create an environment in which Syrians will go home, refugees will go home, and in which legitimate trade will begin to close down the illegitimate trade and give them some leverage to get Assad to stop this Captagon trade and to, in a sense, conform to the norms that the other Arab countries hope he will conform to. Joshua, uh, another reminder of how complicated this region is. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the program again. Well, it's always a pleasure, Tom. Joshua Landis, he's director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Up next, the campaign to free jailed Hong Kong businessman and pro-democracy campaigner, Jimmy Lai.
Now to a man who went from a life of enormous wealth and privilege to the squalor of a jail cell in Hong Kong. Jimmy Lai fled to Hong Kong from communist China as a 12-year-old in the 1950s. He started life in Hong Kong living and working in a textile factory. At age 59, he was a billionaire businessman and publisher of The Apple Daily. That's a pro-democracy newspaper which quickly became a thorn in the side of Beijing. As authorities continued to chip away at the rule of law and freedoms in Hong Kong, Jimmy Lai's Apple Daily, well, it became more strident in its criticisms of the crackdowns. Jimmy Lai was arrested in 2020, charged with violating Hong Kong's national security laws. He could now face life in prison. His supporters have launched a bid to have him freed. At the centre of that campaign is a documentary movie about Jimmy Lai's life and ongoing struggle for democracy in Hong Kong. Eric Cohn from America's Acton Institute is one of the producers of the film. It's called The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom. Eric joins us from Michigan. Eric, welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Jimmy Lai's backstory begins in mainland China. His family was wealthy. He led a happy life. But how did that change when the Chinese communists came to power? Jimmy's family was wealthy. Uh, a lot of that was obliterated during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, his mother was actually sent to a labor camp at one point in time. Um, so while they may have started out uh, very well off, um, they found themselves really on the other side of uh, the horrors of the Cultural Revolution pretty quickly. And he saw an opportunity to get out. He uh, escaped on a boat to Hong Kong when he was 12 years old. Uh, after he had uh, met a person, he was making some money at a train station. And a gentleman from Hong Kong gave him a bar of chocolate to thank him. <laughs> bite. And it was like, this is heaven. Where is this from? And the man said, Hong Kong. And he just knew he had to go there. And you really, as soon as he got there, you see the entrepreneurial spirit take over. You know, mm. as you mentioned, textile factory. He built his own businesses and uh, became a billionaire in the process. It's an incredible story of uh, entrepreneurship and ingeniousness on his part. Now, he hasn't yet been tried for breaching national security laws. So why is he in jail? He has been uh, tried and convicted twice already. The most recent was a very trumped up fraud charge uh, several months ago. He was sentenced to 68 months in prison for his conviction on that fraud charge. Uh, so he is currently in prison, at least for 68 months. The national security law trial is supposed to start in September of this year. They've pushed it off several times already. I expect that uh, they'll probably push it off again, but I, I don't know that for sure. We'll have to see as we get closer to September. Well, when he's tried, I mean, you just have to assume with the Chinese Communist Party dominating Hong Kong now, he'll almost certainly be found guilty. And there are fears that he could then be transferred to a jail in China on the mainland, correct? That's a very real possibility. He's currently being housed at a jail in Hong Kong, awaiting a trial that will happen in Hong Kong and Hong Kong courts. But as you mentioned, uh, all of this is now under the control of Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party. So yes, sadly, it is a fait accompli that he's going to be convicted in this national security law trial. Uh, and it is a very real possibility that afterwards he could be sent to uh, a labor camp or a prison in mainland China uh, if he is convicted, which, of course, we expect he will be. Amazing story. I mean, he's a wealthy, successful businessman, as as we've discussed, 
I mean, he could have left Hong Kong in 2019 and he could have left all those problems behind him. What drove him to stay and fight in Hong Kong? This to me is one of the most remarkable parts of the story. You know, in, in our film, The Hong Konger, we interviewed Lord Patton, who was the last colonial governor of Hong Kong. He was the governor when uh, the United Kingdom handed Hong Kong over to China in 1997. And he says of uh, Jimmy's decision to stay in Hong Kong that he's been incredibly principled and brave. And he says, I'd like to think that I would have been as brave. And you hear this recognition in his voice. It's kind of, I don't think that I would have been able to do what he's doing. I don't know that I would have been able to do what Jimmy is doing. I think it really is a remarkable thing. And mm -hmm. I, what drives him, a huge part of that, um, his religious faith. Uh, he is a Catholic convert. Um, I think he really feels that uh, he's been called to do something uh, in standing up for the principles that guided Hong Kong for so long until they started to be chipped away at and then really destroyed by the Chinese Communist Party. But you're right, he could have fleed at any point in time. Yeah. He could have gone to the United Kingdom. He could have gone to the United States. He could have gone to Taiwan. He chose to stay because I think he understands that there are people who need to stand up and make an example of what is going on there. And the sacrifice that he has showed, the willingness to do those kinds of things that are beyond most people, is one of the real reasons we wanted to tell this story. We need stories of courage and heroism like that. And I think Jimmy is a perfect example of it. Well, you mentioned the handover from Britain in 1997. Now, two years earlier, Jimmy, this was in 1995, he launched the Apple Daily newspaper. And in the documentary, he talks about why he decided to go into the media business. I asked myself, you know, I've made enough money. If I just go on making money, it doesn't mean anything to me. But if I go into the media business, then I deliver information, which is choice. And choice is freedom. Jimmy Lai talking about his foray into the media business. Now, our guest is Eric Cohn, one of the producers of the film, The Hong Konger. Jimmy Lai's extraordinary struggle for freedom. Eric, tell us more about Apple Daily. How successful was it? It was very successful. It was, uh, as Jimmy notes in the film and one of the interviews we have with him, it was the most expensive daily newspaper and uh, it was one of the most purchased. It was one of the most popular um, its editorial page uh, really pulled no punches when it came to Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, as his son Sebastian has said on numerous occasions now, his father, Jimmy, is in prison for telling the truth. Uh, that is one of the things that Apple Daily provided was a news outlet in Hong Kong in ch the Chinese language that was pro-democracy and that was unafraid to say the truth about things that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want to speak the truth about, uh, most specifically Tiananmen Square. That was a huge motivator for Jimmy for why he wanted to get into the media business, uh, was seeing what happened at Tiananmen Square and then seeing the efforts of the Chinese Communist Party to pretend as if it never happened afterwards. You mentioned his son, Sebastian, and this week he accepted on behalf of his father, Jimmy Lai, the Milton Friedman Award at the prestigious Washington-based libertarian think tank, the Cato Institute. I mean, Jimmy Lai must have known that the newspaper and its pro-democracy views, you mentioned the editorial page there, surely he knew that one day that would get him into trouble. I think he did. Um, one of the other interviews we have in the film, he's asked by Peter Robinson at Hoover, mm -hmm. um, 
when would you get out of Hong Kong? And I love his answer where he said, you know, I, I can't get out of Hong Kong. I'm one of the troublemakers and I can't just make the trouble and then go. <laughs> I, I think he was really conscious of the fact that what he was doing was rattling the cage of Beijing, of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so I think he he knew the risks of all of it, but I think he understood as I, I think one of the things we at the Acton Institute want to communicate that the truth is important and telling the truth is important. Um, and he did he went to great lengths to do that, to stand up for what is true. And he did it even to the extent that it has cost him now his freedom as he sits in a jail cell waiting for a trial in a courtroom that really doesn't reflect anything like the rule of law that we would understand in the United States or that you would understand in Australia. Yes, well, you mentioned his incarceration. Um, well, what's happened to his paper, by the way, while he's uh, in, j- in a jail cell? They kept going for a while. Um, the uh, assets of Apple Daily eventually were frozen by Beijing. Jimmy's personal assets were frozen by Beijing. And uh, roughly around uh, mid to late June of 2021, excuse me, 2022, um, the paper shut down. They just could not keep mm. going anymore. They didn't have the money for it, but they um, they were going to publish until the last day that they could publish, and they did that. Uh, there's some remarkable footage we have in the film of people gathered outside the Apple Daily building, holding up their cell phones with the uh, flashlights turned on and waving at the staff of Apple Daily. You see the appreciation that the people of Hong Kong have for um, what Apple Daily provided. And I think we can all appreciate to some extent what's been taken away from them. A voice, um, a fearless voice in Apple Daily as uh, they're being robbed of right now, a a perspective on the news and the truth, they're all without. Well, I mean, he's not alone. I mean, there are many opposition leaders and activist leaders either in jail or in exile So what's left of the pro-democracy movement now in Hong Kong? In Hong Kong, to my understanding, it is mostly underground. Uh, You know, what Hong Kong used to be known for, um, you know, mentioned Milton Friedman a moment ago. The first episode of his documentary series in 1980, Free to Choose, his example of the market at work is Hong Kong. The free flow of information that is necessitated for an economy like that to work, all that is really come to a halt. Um, it is uh, Hong Kong is becoming more like China. Uh, and that's a very sad story for a city that was so incredibly dynamic. And for the pro-democracy movement, yeah, I mean, mostly it's it's forced underground or there are people who are in exile, who are in uh, either Taiwan, that are in England, that are in the United States, that are continuing their efforts to fight for freedom and democracy in Hong Kong from afar. And my greatest hope is that someday all of them can return to Hong Kong and to a city that will be a lot more like the one that we saw leading up to the 1997 handover than the one that we've seen since. Now, Jimmy Lai faces this communist justice in Hong Kong. What does this whole story tell you? I mean, for those of us who are free in the Western world, you're in the United States, I'm here in Australia. uh, Our job in the West is to keep this story alive to ensure that the world never forgets. But apart from a few media outlets in America, do you think this, this story has been getting much international attention? Not as much as I think it should. You know, I've as I've traveled with this film over the last uh, almost year and a half now, uh, I've regularly said that, you know, the United States, uh, I'll speak for the United States here, 
we've been a very inward looking nation for the last seven or eight years, being paying a lot more attention to what is going on within our borders than outside of our borders. And that's for good reasons and bad reasons alike. But I would like to think that in a different time, we would be paying as much attention to what is going on in Hong Kong and what is happening to political dissidents like Jimmy Lai as we were in the 1980s when we were looking at what was happening in Eastern Europe under Soviet domination. So I, I think the, the message is important that we need to keep speaking his name. We need to keep speaking the truth about what is happening to people like him and others in Hong Kong. And telling the truth about what the Chinese Communist Party is doing to rob millions and millions of people of the freedoms that they enjoyed in the city of Hong Kong for so long. Eric, great to have you on RN today. Thank you so much for having me. It's Eric Cohn. He's Director of Communications with the Acton Institute, and he's one of the producers of the documentary I just mentioned, Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom. It's available for free on YouTube. Well, that's it for Between the Lines. And if you'd like to listen to past programs, including my recent discussion with Daniel Gordas, that was to mark this month's 75th anniversary of Israel, just go to the ABC Listen app and search for the Between the Lines podcast, which you can download for free. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.